Welcome to Flashpoint, the Fire Inside podcast. Featuring leadership and team building principles designed to ignite your inner fire and help you reach your full potential. On our program, you will learn from professional athletes, military and business experts, inspirational figures, leaders in the fire service, and other top achievers who have reached the pinnacle of success in their chosen fields. And now your host, international speaker and best-selling author, Frank Viscuso. All right, here we are with Jim Knight, renowned keynote speaker, author, training and development expert. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Frank. I appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. Listen, I wanted you here for one main reason. I wanted to know how you get your hair to stand up like that. <laughs> yes, yes. It's actually one of my most requested questions. Uh, it's called uh, Got to Be Glued. It's um, same look, smell, feel, consistency of Elmer's glue. Same stuff. I swear it's probably packaged just differently, but I, uh, I towel dry my hair. By the time I get my clothes on, it's probably the right dampness. I put some of this glue in my hands. When I separate it, you can see the strands. I literally pull on my hair up and this is what you get. And it stays all day long. Got to be glued. You can get it anywhere. It's awesome. I don't know if it would work with my hair. I feel like if I do that, I'm going to just keep losing more and more. No, I, I think we can do stuff. You want to talk hair care products? We can, we can get on that rabbit hole. That'd be great. We'll do that. We'll talk about music. Uh, actually, we're going to talk about music right now. Okay. Favorite type of music? Favorite type? Uh, you know, probably uh, I grew up on prog rock, so progressive rock. So I'm, I'm a little bit old school. I like Genesis and Rush and Yes, Journey. You know, almost anything with some killer harmonies, especially because of my music background. That's kind of my gig. Right now, I think my favorite band is the Struts. I don't know if you know them, but they're kind of the new up and coming. They feel like the Stones a little bit, a little bit of Zeppelin, but uh, they're, they're some good Brit rockers. Listen up. Some people may go, why are you starting with music? Because they don't even really fully know your background, but you, your role at the hard rock organization, yeah. uh, you know, you led global training for hard rock international for two decades. Is that right? I did. Yeah. For 21 years. Well, out of the 21, I was there, but 18 of those I ran training. Okay. So talk about exactly what that entailed. What are some of the things you did? Yeah. You know, when I first started as a, really as a summer gig, more than anything else, I was a middle school teacher during the day and I just needed a summer job mostly because, you know, teachers don't make any money in the summertime. And uh, I just, I took a gig as a host so I was seating tables, probably more than anything else. And, uh, you know, then you became a trainer. So I was sort of using my educational skills again. And then I got a chance to do some openings, which means you're really training the host at another location. At that time, it was just cafes. And then I became a manager. And then pretty soon after that, I got jumped into the uh, training and development world. I was a part of a very small team. And then just one by one, as I sort of grew my skill set and I got promoted, I wound up taking over that department. And it's pretty much anything, management level, staff level training. Uh, we built a corporate university, which had multiple conferences in it, uh, e-learning, uh, certainly still doing openings. At that time, I was doing hotels, casinos, live music events. So pretty much anything that has a educational or training component, that was kind of my gig. And um, yeah, I had great eight, nine people working for me at that time. Absolutely fun to be involved with that brand. I bet it was because in the introduction leading up to bringing you on, I was talking with 
Chris here about how when you walk into a hard rock, it's like you walk into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's what it feels yeah. like. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it was designed initially uh, to really have the spirit of rock and roll present, not in the background, but literally in the foreground. They wanted it to be part of the experience. It's probably a little tough now. The brand is uh, going to be 50 years old. Now, I, I haven't been with them now for almost a decade, but it'll be 50 this year. And if you think about it, on one hand, probably like you and I, Frank, it's probably cool to go in there and you can identify with the music, the memorabilia. You want just a great burger, but it's probably a little tough for the younger generation today because if they don't listen to that music, if they don't know who the Beatles or the Stones or Elvis or whoever, it's right, right. really going to be a perfect time capsule for you and I for 1971. And that's awesome. But in 20, 30, 40 years, you know, that, that brand has got to start thinking, what do I do? Are we really still hard rock? Are we trying to get into other music disciplines? What kind of memorabilia do I have on the wall? So they, they probably have some challenges ahead for them. But right now, no matter where I am on the planet, it's one of my favorite places to be because I connect with that genre. I, I agree with you. I feel that way. It's interesting you say that because when you listen or you see the new bands that are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, sometimes yeah. you can... Are they really rock and roll? Yeah. Like how are they getting? Yeah, like Jay Z is. Uh, he's nominated, and uh, I guess I, I'm not sure if he's actually in, but I know he's nominated for sure this year. And people would go, he's definitely made his mark in music. There's no doubt about it. But in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's just it gets confusing for people. But you know, I don't get too bollocked up about that stuff because I think music is music. You know, everybody sort of comes to the party at a different place. And as long as you can go in there and have an unbelievably great experience and killer food and buy some retail or whatever it is, or see some live music, that's the stuff I think that's going to resonate with people. But I do think they've got some, some issues coming up. Maybe so. Well, when you were there, they were also from Training Magazine. They were listed one of the top 125 training departments in the world. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I was very lucky to be a part of that group. I won't, uh, I won't say that I'm the reason uh, at all. My team was fantastic, but you know, when you think about all the different industries out there, this is a restaurant concept and we really, I think put in some fantastic best practices that a lot of uh, at least restaurant hotel, a little bit on retail have adopted those policies, man, that's legacy leaving type stuff. And I just, I, I had a gas doing it and I needed to do it anyway internally for our people, but to have that recognition out in the public domain is, is just, it's spectacular. Yeah, I agree. Now, you know, a lot of our listeners are firefighters. Yeah. Prior, prior to us starting this conversation, you told me your dad was a volunteer firefighter. That's pretty cool. You have any stories? Yeah, you know, well, not great ones, but, uh, you know, my dad who did that for about 15, 20 years, uh, now he hasn't done that for about 20 years now at this point, he's in his mid 70s. But, you know, I have been with him when we've rolled up on some accidents where we just happen to be first on scene and I've watched him literally save people's lives. And I know people will say their mom and their dad are heroes. My dad actually was a hero, even in a, a volunteer state, which I loved. Uh, but I can clearly remember there was a theme park that was here in Central Florida. I'm in Orlando, a little bit north of us. We had a, a theme park called Six Gun Territory, Western themed, as you would think, all made of wood. Uh, we were going down the highway and literally he saw that a fire had started and didn't look like a, a normal you know, brush fire. It looked like it was right in the heart of this thing. And so we stopped on the highway. He jumped the fence, went into this place and literally saved people, ran into a burning building 
got some people out of that, helped try and put out the fire. It eventually, the, the whole entire theme park was lost to the fire. And uh, that, that was the last time you ever heard of Six Gun Territory. But again, I just witnessed him going in there and saving people's lives and uh, just having that awareness that a great fireman, a great cop, a great teacher normally does. When you've got that sixth sense and you can see something's not right here and they run into the buildings when everybody else is running out, just makes him more of a superhero to me. That's remarkable that you were able to witness that. How old did you say you were? Oh, I was probably 11, 12 years old. I was pretty young, very impressionable at that time. But even since then, I've seen him do some miraculous things. That's awesome. Now, I recently read in an article that you said three words that best describe you are passionate, detailed, and authentic. Yeah. Great words, by the way. I want to talk about each one of them because- sure. At, we have people that are listening that want to learn how to become better leaders, want to run more effective teams and build a better culture. Yeah. Passion, I think, is essential because I think if you're not passionate about something, it's easy to kind of get tripped up and, I guess, distracted or, or say, well, it's not worth it. I mean, it's, you have to have a burning desire for something. Talk about passion and what it means to you. Yeah, you know, I learned this early on, Frank, that I, I think, especially in a leadership role, if you can be passionate almost about anything, but certainly about the business that you're in, about the people that are working with you or for you, when you can bring the thunder every day and just be passionate about that, I think that's very, you know, it, it's infectious. I think people just watch that and they get motivated, they get inspired. Maybe they then can amp up their own passion for whatever the work is that they're doing. For me, I've just always been like that. And I kind of have to be like that now. I mean, there's, I certainly am, am focusing on four or five different things right now, but I really make my living as a keynote speaker. So whether I'm on stage in front of a couple thousand people or like right now, you and I here on a Zoom call, I still want to be able to be passionate. And I think if people can see that as I am attracted to talent, people that can sing and dance and act and speak, oh my gosh, I'll listen to that person forever if they're compelling. And so I always wanted to be that type of person that I remember from my great teachers or great leaders that have inspired me. So I'm, I'm passionate anyway. It's one of my core values, but I literally, when I've got now an audience in front of me, I'm probably going to just boop, 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 kick it up a couple notches. I got it. I understand that as a speaker myself. I get it. What about detailed? In what way do you think you're detailed? Yeah, probably a little bit overkill on my side. So one of my business partners is, is probably not as detailed. He's a little bit more extemporaneous and has a little bit of fun, just sort of free flowing. I love for things to be detailed, uh, you know, very ordered. Orderly is probably another value of mine. And I think about this, if you've taken any of these uh, personality assessments, DISC, Myers-Briggs, Franklin Covey, whatever it is, It'll always drive me to, I am the type of person that loves for things to be planned, very detailed. My task list is already written down today. I know what is a priority, what isn't. Now, it gets me into trouble sometimes because I'm constantly working on that list. And sometimes I will put some of the cool, fun things to the side that, uh, you know, a lot of my friends or coworker will say, let's go do this. If it's not on the list, it'll throw me a little bit for a loop. But in general, I'm sort of the catch-all. And so I can help people out in a lot of ways. I love being organized, if for no other reason. I got a lot of things on my plate, and I just want to make sure that the end user, whoever that is at that moment, 
is absolutely taken care of. I want to be of service to other people. That's probably why I do it internally. It's probably a little OCD in me. <laughs> and listen, I, I relate to that. I make a checklist every single day. Sure. And it just helps me. The problem is I'm like you, because my wife will say, do you want to go to the beach today? I'm like, I need about an hour and a half yes. I have through these eight things. Yes. You know, it's funny too. I learned uh, at one point I was a licensed facilitator for uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. We put that into the hard rock system, but we hard rock guys the heck out of it. But th there's a story that we talked about all the time that there are some people that literally when they wake up in the morning, they write down that list and that's what they focus on all day. But then you've got these stories where there are some people that wait till the end of the day they write down the list of everything that they did and then they check them off, which is not the same thing. You know, they, they're getting the adrenaline high of checking off a list, which you do absolutely have a chemical that gets released when you do that. But when you're checking off a list that you created, man, that's a power high for you. So, you know, I've always been a list maker. I'm not one of these guys that waits till the end of the day. I've got to have that, that sort of pathway in front of me. I'm the same way. And how about authentic? Yeah, you know, I, I think what you see with me is what you get, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, you know, I definitely am a little bit louder, more aggressive and fast paced. And that's sort of how I've, I've run my life. And, and definitely going through the, the funnel there of the hard rock system. When you work somewhere where it is high energy, fast paced, you're meeting a lot of celebrities, it's live music, it's group sales, it's, you know, whatever it is, all of these things that you just don't think about. I get all of that at one time as a lot of stimulus. I sort of had to stay in front of it. And so I, I probably am just a little bit uh, faster and louder than the average bear. But I think what you see is what you get. And again, that probably leads into the passion area. I think people love to see that authenticity. As long as I can be like you and I are doing right now and still do that when I'm on the stage, or if you see me hanging out at the gas station or the grocery store, what you see is what you get. I'm going to be my exact self to not cater that to different people at different times. Get it now. Culture that rocks. Yes. Oh, nice. I like it. <laughs> yeah. It's your book. And I know you have another one coming out. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. I just awesome. had this delivered last week. I'm halfway through. It's great stuff. Awesome. Thank you for that. Oh, well, you're welcome. Let me tell you a little about the fire service. It seems like maybe 10 years ago, the word culture was introduced into yeah. the fire service. It's been introduced into corporate America long before that. And when I say introduced, I say, I'm talking at, at, a, at a high level where a lot of people are using it as a buzzword, but no one really understands it. That's right. So what is culture to you? Yeah, so you just said something too. Uh, you know, Miriam Webster about five years ago listed culture as their word of the year. So it was, and probably still is, quite the buzzword, right? You go back 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, even in my industry in hospitality, I think people use that word synonymously with uh, heritage, you know, that it's the way that things have been. It's about the past, it's traditions and ancestry and all of that stuff. And I'm, I don't disagree with anybody. But I've learned that really at the heart of culture, my ultimate definition, at least around organizational culture is, it's just a collection of human beings. That's it. It's a collection of people with some unique behaviors. And some of those behaviors, you know, are pretty awesome and some of them not so much. But whoever's working in the business, in the company, in the firehouse at that moment, that's going to be your culture. And so what happens is if you have, let's say, a couple slackers, 
you're going to have a different culture than when you've got a, a complete group of rock stars. And the problem is every time somebody leaves or joins the organization, the culture changes like immediately. And if you're somebody who, let's say you join, uh, you know, one particular house and uh, you've only been there for six months and then you leave six months, whether we take you out, you leave on your own, you get promoted, whatever it is, you still made a dent in the culture, even in those six months. But if you're somebody who's been around for a long time, if you've been a veteran doing this, if you're the chief, right, and you leave, you probably have more sweeping, broad impact and influence change that's going to happen. And the guy or girl that's going to take over for you is going to change it the way that they want to do it. So I am such a huge believer that everything is learned behavior, learned behavior. You learn everything from your parents, from school, from your friends, from religion, from lack of religion to the playground, whatever it is. So when you come to me as a 19, 20 year old kid wanting a gig, you are the way you are. And if your natural disposition isn't to have a good work ethic or have a good personality or know how to smile or make people feel warm, that's a problem for me in most industries. In hospitality, it definitely won't work. I don't know how much of that would be important to you, but it is the way it is because of the personalities that come on board. So I know that's a long answer, but I think the way that I've always looked at company culture, it isn't the product. It isn't that you were first to the market. It isn't even the systems and processes and tools and all that stuff. It's the humans. And if we get that right, you'll have the exact culture that you want. That's the impetus of what I talk about. More in that book too, because the rest of the book is all predicated on that single premise. Get the right people, you'll have the right culture. And I like what you touched on there was how somebody leaves, somebody else comes in, your culture just changed. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that and that they need to learn because culture is either created by design or default. That's right. You're, like, you're either going to create it or somebody's going to create it for you. Exactly. You have a great quote too. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yes. I didn't create that. That's an old Peter Drucker line, which uh, I think he may have been the first one that's attributed to that, but it's the, it's the absolute truth. And, you know, I, I think the point you were making earlier, I, I I'm sure back in the day, 20, 25 years ago, I would go in to try and talk to the executive team or go talk to the CEO. And I would throw down the culture card and I would say, we ought to do this because it's cool and fun and it's the right thing to do. But if it wasn't tied to you know, any business strategies, nothing operational, I get laughed out of the room. I do believe now there are way more businesses, executives, founders, uh, startups, entrepreneurs, they get it now. There's way too many awesome examples of companies that are doing it so well. And they absolutely will point back and say, it's because of the culture of all the success that we're getting. So, you know, I am a big believer of that Drucker saying that, culture eat strategy for breakfast and lunch and dinner, like do all the strategy you want. And I am a believer, by the way, of putting strategy in place. You just asked me about being detailed. I love that stuff. But at the end of the day, I would forego some of that stuff. If I could do something that would make some cultural inroads to get me to Nirvana, if it could get me a little bit further down the road and help perpetuate my brand for everybody to see culture is going to crush everything else I can think of. You had said that your personal motto is a single person with a great idea can start a revolution. Yes. Page, great quote. On page 11, you have another quote from Tupac. I don't, yes. can't believe I'm quoting Tupac on a firefighter podcast, but we're going to do this. Yes. And this is his quote. I'm not saying I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee I will spark the brain that will change the world. The reason yeah. I bring those two up is because I get this, question a lot from new officers 
where they're recently promoted, they want to make a change, but they have superior officers and, you know, in the whole chain of commander or first level officer. And they don't know if they could positively impact their organization. I believe they can. I know you believe they can too, but can you talk about that, about with somebody with maybe limited influence or responsibilities, how they can possibly impact a culture? Yeah, I'd love to. It's probably, other than the hair care products, when you ask, it's probably my second most requested question, especially when I'm doing an in-person keynote. I get this all the time from sometimes up and coming new, maybe even middle managers, which I think you're talking about right here. If they're in the middle and they've got some superiors, they got people in front of them. That is the question. Do I really make a difference in the culture? How can I? I don't even have any direct reports. And of course, I, I do talk about it in the book and I do in my new book. You absolutely can. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example. I um, When I first became a manager, Hard Rock had created a position for me because they wanted me to go do openings. But now that I'd gotten to a, a leadership level that was that was management, it was bigger than just being a host. When I came back to my home location, I was running shifts as a manager, but I was imposed upon the general manager and his team that he had at the time. He, he got to self-select everybody except for me. So here's a guy from the corporate support center. This guy didn't choose me and now I'm running shifts. So I would get the worst shifts. I was probably running some departments that, that weren't a lot of fun that nobody else really wanted. But what I learned from that is, you know, the old adage in lieu of leadership lead. I just said, you know, I don't even care who my boss is. I mean, I do. I want to be developed. I want to grow. I want to be loved on like everybody else. But the reality was, if I'm not going to get that from somebody, I will absolutely take control of my own destiny. And so I knew that anybody working on these shifts, they were going to have a fun time. We were going to be doing contests. I was going to be having some yuck, yuck laughs along the way. And oh, by the way, I was still going to hold them accountable, but maybe not muscling the result and managing through threats and punishment and fear, like an old school 20, 25 year ago mentality was. So I had such an unbelievable time, regardless of who my boss was. And I created my own culture. And then of course, what happened is exactly what you would think. That person goes away. I get promoted. I move up. And ultimately now I'm running the thing. So I I think people, if they stick in their lane and say, I'm going to stick to my values, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to balance between humility and in fact, bringing something spectacular, bringing the thunder, like I said before. And oh, by the way, I might actually do some uh, upward delegation. I might be able to have a conversation with my boss and say, listen, not for anything, but this is how you made me feel, or this is how you made the team feel, or whatever it is. And you might, you might actually influence and impact that person. So I am absolutely one of these people that regardless of who's there, I'm going to be a lifelong learner. I'm going to listen to podcasts and read books and grow my skill set, put as many arrows in my quiver as possible. So I am promotable. I am ready. And I'm influencing everybody around me. Even if I don't have direct reports, I can do that from a peer standpoint as well. So somebody's got to make that decision. Like you've got to be able to get in the game and want to do that, but you can be a culture catalyst. You can make a difference regardless of the level, but you got to invite yourself to the party and get that mindset I can make a difference and you will. I, I guarantee you, you will. We have a similar philosophy in this too, where I've told officers that if it's not the perfect working environment for you, because maybe you're working for somebody who, who leads through intimidation. Yeah. You could learn what not to do. And you can also do it your way for the crew that you're leading. And when you do eventually get to that position, 
you can make that positive impact, but, but don't wait till you get there. Yeah. Do it now. Yeah. Don't, don't wait to be developed. Don't wait to, and again, I think leaders are so different these days and there probably are still people. It is a top-down approach and they're going to, in fact, try and get the results by just beating up on people. I don't know how that happens in business today, but there's still some industries and still some people that will do that. I'm sure there's some houses out there that do that. I just think there's a different way now. And, you know, I'm very lucky. I get a chance to work with uh, Andrews Air Force Base up in DC. That's where the presidential aircraft go off. I work with all the brigadier generals. You know, you would think that the military would in fact still be with that mentality of very top down, but boy, I I don't want to say it's a kinder, gentler uh, military because the Air Force still has a lot of things in place. But at the end of the day, as long as the end task is getting done, I think there's a lot more flexibility in an all volunteer military. So, you know, if the military can do it, I think just about anybody else can do that as well. But it might take it might take a couple a little bit longer. But in general, I'm sticking to my guns on this belief that I really do believe that people can make a difference. You don't have to do exactly what your boss said. Now, if it's within the guidelines of the company, you've got to follow those values. You know, you're not, you can't do anything that's going to get us in trouble or, or have some customer get upset or somebody that you're taking care of or throw me in jail or something like that. But beyond that, when, when the boss isn't around, if I could do some things to create that mentality and still fall in line with the brand, I think everyone's going to win on that. So you talk about in your book, three C employees. Yes. Competence, character, culture. Yeah. Is that what you looked for in Hard Rock when they were hiring? Are they are saying, you know, we want, we, we're looking for character. We're looking for competence. Or is this something you just figured out after they came in the front door? You know, I, uh, I, I think they always uh, looked for that. I think that was such a critical piece from the day they started in, uh, in June 14th, 1971. They needed all three of those. I don't think they said it like that. I don't think that's the way it was designed. And even when I left the company, I'm not sure all of our human resource practices were, were put into those buckets, but it was clear to me, let's say there were eight things that they were looking for. You could truncate them down into those three you had to be able to do the job. And I think when you look at a resume, uh, a CV, an application, regardless of the level, you had to be able to do the job. The reality is in a lot of these cases, they did not have the experience somewhere else. If you wanted to come be a server or bartender, maybe you had to have a little bit of experience, but a retail sales associate, a busser, a dishwasher, a host, you don't need any experience with that. Anybody that tells you otherwise, they're just lying through their teeth. Somebody has got to give them an opportunity. But, but if you had the competence, you had the wherewithal to learn, and I could see that during the training, I'm not worried about that. That, that probably, for me, is the least important C. The second one, though, is massively important. I needed people that had the right character. They had the right heart. Their value orientation matched up to mine. They weren't looking for an opportunity to always do things their way. They, they weren't looking for an opportunity to steal from me, which, again, every company probably has a small percentage of somebody like that. But you know, they will eventually reveal themselves. The lip syncer always revealed themselves at some point, right? I used to stop at those two. And, I, and if it was in hard rock, I would say that third C, the culture fit, massively critical. You go back 25, 30 years ago, it goes back, Frank, like we were talking about before. I'm not sure people cared that much about the culture as long as they're making money, as long as sales were happening, as long as they were pushing through product, whatever it is, right? Now, I think it is critical. And maybe even the culture fit 
truncates all the rest of them. So, or trumps the rest of them. In, in my mind, I now think you could get away with putting all your hiring, training, communicating, rewarding, recognizing around those three C's. If you did that, you're going to be in a much better place. And again, maybe you don't have the right competence yet. I'm willing to give you a little bit more time. If you don't have the right character or if you don't have the right culture fit, they're going to be a statistic. At some point, they're going to leave. And, and for some people, they're okay with that. There's healthy turnover in some businesses. In my world, man, it's really expensive and time-consuming. What a monumental pain in the butt if you're constantly turning through people. You never get to the sweet stuff. You never get to the cool factor because you're constantly training. So I know there's direct correlation, at least in hospitality. If you can hold on to people, the lower the turnover, the better the sales. You always get to the promised land if you can get people to stay with you longer. I would assume it's like that in your world too, right? Well, it is because if, if firefighters are always looking for the next department to move into, we're just spending a lot of money training them. They're going through the academy. You're equipping them. Yeah. They're getting certified. All of a sudden, now they're moving on. Well, there's $22,000 out the window or whatever it is. Exactly. Yeah. And it adds up. That so I also want to talk about just um, change. In the fire service, we're going through change constantly. And you actually have a good quote. Let me read this. If you hate change, then you're really going to hate extinction. Yes. <laughs> That's what's going to happen to a brand if a company never alters course to stay fresh, relevant, or on, or at pace with society. That's a great quote. Thank and you. So there's a joke that we say in the fire service that firefighters hate two things, change and the way things are. I don't necessarily think that's true, but talk a little bit about change because my, my take on it is I think sometimes making the decision to change is way harder than change itself. Yeah. You agree with that? I do. I actually do. I think it's a mindset. Um, you know, I guess the old adage of, you know, death and taxes, I would throw change into there. There are things that are always going to happen. It's funny that you think about change being inevitable. It's going to happen. So you can look at it as things happening to you or, ha or things happening for you. And uh, in my mind, I've always looked at those inflection points in life. These almost small culture, you know, th these personal shifts as things that happen for me. So once I have that mindset and I'm in a much better place because I'm looking for the opportunity. And if I'm really good at that, which is kind of where I think your question might be leading, I think you can lean into change. I think you could be a catalyst for change. You could own the change. You could get in front of it so much. So you're the one creating the change instead of just sitting there like a lemming and going, woe is me. I wish it was always the way it was before. Oh, remember when everybody does that. Now we're back into the legacy world, right? I think people are scared to death of change because they just don't have that mindset. And I do jokingly, that is one of my quotes. I do jokingly sort of use sobering language like that because I go, listen, change is going to happen. You know, if, if you don't want to deal with that, if you don't like that, it's going to be a problem for you. So if you don't like change, you're really not going to like extinction. Not being around is not fun. So as a company or as an individual, I think you've almost got to be hyper aware that stuff is going to happen regardless, you know, and I think great marketers over the years have told me that around the seven year mark, the company, the brand has to do something. You'll start to plateau and then you'll start to go down. If you don't find an inflection point to go back up, 
then you are literally, like we talked about with Hard Rock, is going to struggle. They're going to be a perfect time capsule for whatever. And then whoop, 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 tons of people are going to pass you by. So I, I think change, there's so many books and podcasts and articles written about this thing. And I know we could talk about dealing with change. I think when it comes to organizational culture, you can be a culture catalyst. You can actually embrace the change and be a part of it. And when you control that, it's less likely that you're going to be dumbfounded when something happens. You're like, no way. You were part of that. And that's fantastic. That's awesome. That's what great leaders do. And they're not blindsided. They actually make it happen for them. And let's talk about the person that maybe is not the catalyst for change. Maybe they have a much smaller role. Yeah. For example, one time at the fireground, I had an engine company arrive on scene and I told them to be the rapid intervention team. Now what the rapid intervention team does is they stand on the outside, they prepare their tools. And if firefighters get in trouble, their job is to go in and save the firefighters. Very important for me, but firefighters don't want to stand there and watch a building burn. Of course. They don't want to be in there. So they weren't happy with the assignment till I explained to them how important they are to me. I remember Abby Wambach, from 2015 World Cup soccer team was told, awesome. Abby, you'll make the team, but you're going to be playing on the bench and coming off the bench for maybe the last couple of minutes of each game. She thought about it and accepted that role and said, "If I, then I'll lead from the bench if I'm going to lead. What do you say to employees that say, I have more in me? Disney has 59,000 cast members. Not yeah. every one of them is on the forefront of dealing with people making change. Yeah. What's your message to them? I think it's exactly what you said. I, I think there's something, you know, there has to probably be some education, some conversations along the way, because to your point, nobody, nobody's going to like that, especially if they want to be in the starting lineup. They want to be a rock star. They feel like they can crush whatever it is. But knowing not everyone's going to do that. And it's not just because maybe you're the new girl or the new guy. I mean, Abby Wambach now is on the speaking circuit, has more influence and impact than just about anybody in, in major soccer right now. It's just it's unbelievable because she waited her time. And, I, you know, you could probably use um, the NBA as a great example. There's only going to be five people on the court at any given time. But how many awesome stories are there of the sixth, seventh, eighth man, and, and probably in the WNBA as well, where they come off, you know, off the bench and they're absolutely either going to win the game or at some point they move into a starting lineup. But not everyone's going to be in that role. And so there is a little bit of humility that people have to take with that and go, it's not my time right now. It's not my turn right now but I'm going to sort of eat that. This is what happens in the NFL when great starting quarterbacks that have been playing for 10 years and all of a sudden they get traded to another team and they're, they're the backup. And it's, it's pretty humbling, I would guess, but they play a critical role. Look at what happened with the Dallas Cowboys as last year, you know, their starting quarterback goes down. Thank goodness that that particular team had a veteran quarterback that was ready to go. So I'm not sure if I'm saying anything differently than you would be saying, Frank, I just think, People have to come to this mindset that you can still make a difference in the company. You can still make a difference in the culture. You've got to be ready. Speaking of change, things are going to happen and you don't know where it's going to come from. And if you're there at a moment's ready, one of two things, either you're going to be awesome at that and constantly be the perfect sixth man, or somebody's going to move on and get promoted and do something else and you'll be called up. That's that's why there's AAA ball clubs, right? So I don't know if I've shared anything really an epiphany on that one, but I think it's a mindset. Once again, people just have to eat a little bit of crow and go, 
I'm going to, I'm going to crush it what I'm doing right now. And cool things are going to happen to me. Yeah. I didn't tell you this, but I played drums growing up and ah. I just thought about this while we're having this conversation is how probably the least known member of most bands, unless it's Metallica or Rush is the yeah. drum. What right? an important role. Yeah. Well, first off, what, what's your, who's your favorite drummer? Well, I, you know, I have to tell you, it's probably Dave Grohl, not because really? of his okay. drumming ability, but his ability to now become the front man of the Foo Fighters and, yeah. and it's so talented all across the board. Yeah. So, that's, so like most people, I'd probably say someone like Neil Peart. That's but, my number one. Yep. Yeah. I'd go Neil Peart with Rush, not just because of prog rock. I just look at that guy's talent. But to your point, talent. like Bill Collins, you know, who once uh, Peter Gabriel left Genesis, he was the drummer and he moved into that forward facing role. And I think you're right. They, the drummer and the bass player, never get as much love as the lead guitarist and the front guy or the front girl. Right. It's like that all the time. Even think about you too. Everybody knows the front person. They know Bono. They might know the guitarist, the edge, you know, it depends. People don't know who the bass player and the drummer, you, you don't know who those two people are, you know, and, and they're very influential. I mean, you too has four people in it. They're the biggest band on the planet. But if you don't know who those two people are, you know, you're probably okay with it. For me, I go, you take those two people out. Bono and the Edge playing on their own are still pretty cool, but it's not you two at that moment. So I, I do think that, uh, you know, from, from a drummer standpoint, you're right. People that are way in the back on stage, literally and figuratively, they still make a difference. They are critical. In rock and roll and blues, if you don't have the rhythm section, if you don't have the bass and the drummer, you're in trouble. Amen. So talk about your transition from hospitality to becoming a successful speaker. Was this something you were thinking about while you were with hard rock or was this an afterthought? Uh, you know, I was doing it the last couple of years. Uh, so a couple of things happened. I said, I went to college to uh, get my music degree. So I had some performance in me. I'd done a lot of community theater, but I loved being on stage and in front of people. So you start with that. Then I mentioned I was a middle school teacher for six years. So again, education, but still in front of people, then you get to Hard Rock, where I worked in the busiest restaurant in the world in Orlando, pumping about 7,000 people a day through that thing, doing $35,000 hours, which is unheard of in the restaurant world. Um, and it was fun. It was fun to work in a building that was doing $42, $43 million each year. But along the way, I was using all three of those levers, and I still pull those levers. I still use music, education, hospitality, and exactly what I do. But I learned probably I can go back to 2003 when it first started that somebody just asked me locally, they had a conference in town. Could somebody come over and talk to them about hard rock? It, it wasn't anything leadership, had no real business infrastructure. They just wanted to hear the story of the company. I was like, yeah, I'll go do that. I did that. And sure enough, somebody in the back of the room came up to me afterwards. And this is what happens to a lot of speakers that get started. They go, can you do what you just did for my company? How much do you charge? And that was boop, you know, light bulb moment. So I was doing it on the side, um, not keeping the money. I would charge people. I was taking the money, but I would give it to Hard Rock as a revenue generating initiative, which for training and development people, we spend money. We don't make money. So my boss loved me for basically funding all kinds of initiatives. And I was able to hire some more people, but that got inside of me. So I think the last three, four years, even though I was doing it on the side, my mindset went to, you know, I am loving getting a chance to now go vertical into other industries 
versus just hospitality. And when I can get to, I don't know, the International Packaged Ice Association or, or the National Funeral Directors Association or whoever, there's an association for everything. You said yourself, there's firefighter conferences, right? When I can be the guy in there and someone, a client has thought outside the box versus just having people inside that industry, that's pretty exciting. I think that's how people learn something different, even a best practice or two that you can get from those keynote speakers. So I think I got that bug inside of me to sort of feed the beast, which is also why I started writing the book like that. Neither one of those were on my radar screen, probably in the late nineties, but by the mid two thousands, it absolutely was uh, what I thought I was going to do the rest of my life. And that's what I'm doing now. And you have a podcast too, right? Thoughts that rock. I do. I'm about to start two more with my business partner. The one we have right now is called Thoughts at Rock. Thanks a lot for asking. It's uh, it's really, we ask two questions. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? And how did that change your life? And that's it. We don't do a big, long hour and a half, you know, background format. Um, you know, we're basically asking those two questions and that's allowed us to get some pretty interesting and well-known guests on there because it's a low entry for them to talk about it. And just that topic, we'll still talk about their brand, their service, their book, whatever it is. But for the most part, they just love coming on and sharing words of wisdom. And our audience, they they eat it up. We've been very lucky to be in the top 200 in our category. I love that. You know, the best advice I was ever given was this. Someone, I don't even know who told me this. This is the craziest part about it. Uh-oh. I don't even remember who told me. I just remember somebody saying, you need to get started and stop stopping. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I never forgot that message. And I could level, I could bring it down to three people. It's one of three people that said it to me. But I remember thinking, well, that is my problem. I start, I stop, and then I have to restart and I keep losing momentum. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't I really, say that, Frank, just so you know, that wasn't one of mine. <laughs> it I got didn't you. come for me. I know. Yeah, I'll track it down eventually. No, but it's weird when you can remember somebody saying that to you, yeah. but, but I can't even remember where it came from. I just remember it was one of those things where down the line, it started resonating even more with me where I started saying, I, I just need to stay focused and keep moving in that direction. For yeah. example, when I was writing my first book, but share with me maybe one or two thoughts that rock. Yeah, you know, I, I sort of had a similar thing. I can't remember where I heard it, but for at some point, because I was trying to do too much, it may have been my first boss, uh, real boss over at Hard Rock that said, you can't tackle everything. You need to get some small wins before you get to the next step. And I was always swinging for the fences, trying to get a home run on everything. And even though I'm going all the way back to my value of being detailed, organized, I hate when stuff is just kind of halfway done. Um, but his point was, if I just do one thing and do it really well, just crush that again, your responsibilities are going to grow, which is exactly what happened. He was right. And not only do you start having uh, more responsibilities, you're able to take on more, you're able to multitask. And I was for sure back in the day, not very good at multitasking. I was good at doing one thing, but once you get really solid at that, you can grow those skills. But you know, you said my quote earlier. I mean, the one, if somebody said, what is the best thought? You know, it's probably mine in my head. I go, a single person with a great idea can start a revolution. And I just think, you know, that's how 
dictators are, are overthrown in, in countries. That's how philanthropic movements are started. That's how company cultures grow and evolve and get amped up because somebody made the decision to get in the game and really make a difference. And maybe it was a small win, small win, small win, but ultimately they're now in charge and they have much more impact and influence. So those are two, and, and maybe they're connected. Start small, you know, crush those things, keep doing it. And everybody can do that regardless of the level. But then I really do believe if you've got some good ideas, don't hold those to yourself. Invite yourself to the party. Figure out a way to get that onto the table. But you can make a difference in the culture. Great stuff. Jim, you have a new book coming out, right? Leadership That Rocks? Yeah, Leadership That Rocks. So I uh, that, that book that you have, I'm deconstructing that book and I'm pulling out the main three pillars. Uh, thanks a lot again. Uh, I'm taking Leadership That Rocks uh, is going to be the one that comes out May 18th. And this time I'm doing it with a, a great hybrid publisher called Page Two Books. Um, they're fantastic. I'm actually doing three books with them. So Leadership That Rocks will be in May. Next year, 2022, will be Service That Rocks. And then in, in uh, 2023, will be Engagement That Rocks, which is really about employee engagement more than anything else. So if you actually put those together, you would have the essence of Culture That Rocks but you'd have a more relevant, more updated. Some of these companies that I've had a chance to interact with and write about and go and speak for, I've just fallen madly in love with them. And some of them didn't even exist when I wrote my first book. So just gives me a chance to, to be a little bit more relevant. But if somebody wants to hire me for just one topic, I've got a book for that. And if they want to come back to the well the next year, different book, different speech, that's, that's sort of how it works. But these next three books are very exciting for me. Well, good. Good luck with that. Thank you. And I'll be the first one to pick them up. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk with us. I think our listeners can get a lot of value for this, but how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, probably. Thank you so much for that. But the best place is probably at my website at nightspeaker.com. So it's my last name, K N I G H T, speaker.com. And you'll see everything from the training I do, the different keynotes, uh, the podcast that we do, uh, my book marketing company called Bookstar PR. We help authors extend the reach of their brand. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. So I would just send them there because they can find everything they're looking for in that one place, nightspeaker.com. Great. Jim, thank you again. I can't wait to release this episode. It's going to be a great one. And I hope we get a chance to bring you out again soon. I'd be honored. I'd be honored. And, and thank you so much. And thank you for you and most of your audience I know are first responders and I really appreciate your service. So thank you guys for everything you do.